pastors here at Bethel. And isn't Advent season great? Don't you love coming into the sanctuary and seeing all these beautiful Christmas decorations? And I just want to thank all of the deacons and the ladies of Bethel who helped make this possible. It's great to see this up. Well, as we enter into Advent this morning, uh, it's my privilege and honor to uh, open this series. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So uh, a few weeks back before the cold snap and all of this blessed rain that we're receiving, uh, Nancy and I decided to go up to Tyler State Park. It's, it's just so close and it's so beautiful and we, we love to be outside and it's great to get the kids out and hike on the trails. And we usually do this, this one hike because it's predictable, it's pretty and it's easy enough for the kids. We like to just hike around the lake and the kids can stop and, you know, throw sticks and stones in the water and things like that. That's what I was expecting. But on the way to the park, Nancy throws out this idea. Hey, how about we try a new hike? One that I've, I've read about that I'd like to do. Mm, why would we do that? We, we know already what to expect with this other hike uh, that we've done so many times. If, if we try this new one out, yes, it might be great, but it might not be. And then we drove all the way up here and the kids had no fun and... I'm disappointed. Have you ever been so certain that you would be disappointed about something only to find out you were completely wrong and you were happily disappointed that you were wrong? You see, this, this hike that Nancy had researched is not only beautiful and perfect for the, the kids to, to walk around, but it puts on full display the unique aspects of Tyler State Park. Now, many of you might not know that, that Tyler and Tyler State Park in particular is right there at the crossroads of two eco-regions. It's on the western edge of the Piney Woods. Think lots and lots of trees. And it borders what's called the Post Oak Savannah. Think less trees, different trees, open space, grass. In this hike that Nancy took us on, it weaved through those two eco-regions. And it was just spectacular to see the full beauty of the fall colors on display in these two eco-regions together. You see, my expectations were temporarily thrown for a loop, and that twisted my emotions and clouded my perspective but what I found out in the end is that my expectations were far exceeded. They were far exceeded. And in life, managing our expectations is a full-time job, is it not? Some expectations for a particular situation are completely unrealistic. You're not going to win the Powerball, so quit buying tickets. It's an unrealistic expectation for your life. Other expectations are realistic and might be met at times and might not be met at times. Sometimes family Thanksgivings are wonderful. Other times they're not so wonderful. This is all part of life, managing our expectations. 
with the management of these expectations, we experience joy. But we also experience grief. We experience disappointment. But we also experience gratitude. And this morning, as we enter into Advent season, as you look around and you see all these beautiful decorations and these candles, we're entering into this season of Advent. It's this season where we're looking back to the Lord's first coming, his first Advent. And we're waiting in great anticipation for his return. And in this season, we have expectations. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to talk about what we as believers in the Lord in this time of waiting, what is it that we can expect? What are some legitimate, realistic expectations that can ground us in our walk with the Lord? And to do that, we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And in this particular passage, our author Matthew is going to be summarizing for us the early life of Jesus, a very tumultuous season in his life. And he's going to be summarizing this around three prophetic uh, phrases or sayings of prophets that were fulfilled either by Jesus or an event in Jesus's life. And so like Matthew, the structure of our sermon this morning is going to be over these three prophetic utterances and how they were fulfilled and what it means that they were fulfilled, and then talk about how their fulfillment impacts our expectations, what we can expect in this season of anticipating the Lord's return. So what we're going to do is we're going to read verses 13 through 23, and then we're going to go one prophetic utterance at a time and talk about how it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Matthew 2 verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel, angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been, he had ascertained from the wise men. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called 
a Nazarene. Okay, so three fulfillments. We're going to start with the first there, and we're going to be in verses 13 through 15. And this first fulfilled prophecy is Jesus is God's true son. Jesus is God's true son. Look at verse 15 at the actual fulfillment. It says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So the key idea here is sonship. Sonship. And this is an utterance from Hosea chapter 11. And its historical context is it's referring to God as the father of the nation of Israel, calling them out of bondage in Egypt to be his covenant people. So that's the original idea. And to be a son in a technical sense means you represent the father to others. You represent the father to others. And we get this even today. My parents would teach me as a child, be respectful to others. Be respectful to elders. When I was to go to someone's house or go to school, be respectful to your teachers. And if I wanted to be snarky and press them on it, they would say, A, it's the right thing to do. B, your last name is Bradley. You represent us. You represent the family. So be respectful. So that's the idea here of sonship. And when we are talking about Israel being God's son, it means that they were his representative kingdom of priests to the nation. To the nation, excuse me. As priests, it was through Israel that God intended to bless these unbelieving nations, always by grace through faith. And it was as a kingdom, a representative kingdom, that they put on display God's righteousness, peace, and prosperity through their faithful obedience. However, how did Israel do? We know they did not do so well as God's representative kingdom of priests. They were faithless. They were untrue in their representation of the Father. Their purpose was legitimate. He didn't set them up to fail. But we know now that it was limited. It was leading somewhere. And it was incomplete. It was requiring God to make a new covenant with a new heart that would want to obey God. And he would call out a new representative, a true son. So this is where Jesus steps onto the stage here. In, in our passage, he's born. He's probably two years old or younger. And this is where we see Jesus being called God's son. Now, typically when the Christian thinks about God's son, they think of it in Trinitarian terms. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's not what Matthew is talking about in this passage. He's talking about Jesus being God's true representative, his king. And so how did Jesus fulfill this prophecy? Well, Jesus is a descendant of David. He is an Israelite. And we know from the Old Testament that God invested in David's family this Davidic covenant that said, from your family will be one who rules the world. And combining that with the Abrahamic covenant, we know that it's through Jesus, God's true son, that he will bless the world. 
And so that's how Jesus has fulfilled this. Simply put, Jesus is the outworking of all of God's accomplished blessings in the covenants. It's through Jesus that God will bless the world. It's through Jesus that God will advance his kingdom. Okay, so what about the kingdom in the sense of this peace, this righteousness, this prosperity that you're preaching about that this true son will advance? Managing our expectations. We live in the already not yet part of the kingdom meaning that already some of these blessings are inaugurated. We have the forgiveness of sins. We have the Holy Spirit. And yet, we can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We're called to confess our sins to God, to maintain fellowship. And this is a a kingdom that's focused on advancing it through the gospel, through the proclamation of who Jesus is. It's only once Jesus returns that we will experience the fullness of the kingdom with true righteousness and peace and prosperity. So we have this in our lives. It's around the corner. Now, Christmas is also around the corner. I don't know about you guys, but did any of you men spend time up in the attic This weekend, getting Christmas decorations down. I see some heads nodding. I did. Got all the Christmas decorations down this weekend. Put the tree up. uh, Let our daughters put lights in their room, which they convinced me unsuccessfully that they could sleep through the night with those lights on in their room. So I had to unplug those in the middle of the night. The point is, is that my kids are daily asking me, how much longer till Christmas, Dad? How much longer until we get to open those presents under the tree that have our name on them, that I can see that are there for us? Not yet. Not yet. They are yours, but not yet. As an adult, I'm not asking when is Christmas. What am I asking? I'm asking when does Christ return? When does Christ return so that I can experience the fullness of these new covenant blessings? Get a resurrection body. See Jesus. See him reign, rule the world as God's true son, his king. Those are the questions that I'm asking. And that day will come. You can expect it. You can long for it. Our name is written in the book of life. Those blessings are secure. And we do not wait aimlessly. This time of waiting is not purposeless. It's it's not just so God can watch us from heaven as as we fidget or struggle. That's not it at all. God uses this anticipation in our lives to sanctify us. 1 John 3, 1 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that whenever it is revealed, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, which we do, if you've trusted in Jesus, 
You have this hope. Everyone who has this hope focused on him purifies himself or purifies herself just as Jesus is pure. So what that teaches us is this time of waiting is, is we block out the distractions, the busyness of Christmas, and, and we focus our attention on the hope we have in Christ. God uses that to purify our desires, to purify our values, who we are as people. And this is precious to us, isn't it? This is precious to us because we know that this life is not all there is. We know that the the struggles we endure, this is not the end of the story. This is just an aspect of it that God is redeeming and using in our, our lives to make us more like Jesus. And this moves us to our second fulfilled prophecy that we see in verse 18 there. And what we're going to see here is that God pursues and unveils his kingdom purposes no matter what. No matter the obstacles, God is pursuing and unveiling his kingdom purposes in this world, in the church, and in our individual lives. So it's going to take some time for me to explain to you how a mother's grief for the loss of her child there in verse 18 could add up to what I just said. But in order to do that, we're going to take a few steps back, okay? And so just bear with me. We're going to take a few steps back and understand the broader context here of Matthew chapter 2. Now, you might have picked up on this in the past, but what scholars have noticed is in Matthew 2, there are parallels between the life of Jesus and the history of the nation of Israel. There's these parallels, these similarities that what the nation experienced, Jesus experienced. One commentator wrote, Jesus culminates Israel's history in chapter 1 simply by being born. He's He's the high point of Israel's history. All that Israel was was going towards, came to fruition in Jesus. But in chapter 2, his life repeats the history of Israel. In chapter 2, we see his life repeat. And it's to validate who he is. That he is this true Israel in that sense. The true son. And in verses 16 through 18, this passage with this second prophecy, Matthew is going to more specifically present Jesus as a new Moses, a greater deliverer, a greater covenant mediator. He's going to present this as who Jesus is. And we see it in a few ways. We see it first that Jesus, like Moses, was born during the reign of an oppressive ruler. Jesus during Herod, Moses during Pharaoh. And we see that both Herod and Pharaoh ordered the indiscriminate, in mass slaughtering of baby boys. And we see that Jesus fled Herod as a refugee to Egypt. And later in Moses' life, he fled Pharaoh as a refugee to Midian. And we also see it in that in verse 20... The angel here is actually quoting a verse from Exodus 
4, when the Lord was speaking to Moses about returning. Exodus 4 is repeated in verse 20. It says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Here's the part that's repeated. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now Matthew is including that in there by the leading of the Spirit to help us connect these dots that Jesus is this new Moses, this greater deliverer that we have long waited for. So in doing this, we can have confidence that this Jesus is who we've been waiting for, is who the original Jewish audience had been waiting for. And understanding this, that this is what Matthew's doing in this passage, gives us this interpretive lens to understand this grief and, and what it means in fulfilling a prophetic utterance and what it means in our lives today. No matter the obstacles in your life or on a massive scale, an oppressive government, no matter the obstacles, God pursues and unveils his kingdom purposes. In this, we see in the midst of a broken, grief-stricken circumstance where Babylon had utterly overwhelmed Jerusalem and was shipping their boys off. Daniel being one of them, who was a righteous man. And these mothers that were grieving, were grieving at a place called Ramah, which was where they had herded all of these boys. And they no doubt felt like God's kingdom purposes had failed. God had failed. He had failed us. A greater kingdom had swallowed up God's kingdom of priests. And these mothers were grieving. And no doubt, Daniel's mother was one of them. A woman who had raised her boy to know and love the one true God. To live in accordance to his word. And yet she's losing her son, grieving. And we see this repeated in the life of Jesus. These mothers who lost their sons did nothing to deserve that. God's hand was not in that. But God stepped into that and he pursued and he unveiled his kingdom purposes. Showing us that nothing can stop the kingdom program of God. Was God finished when Herod wiped out these baby boys? No. He sent an angel to intervene. Was God finished when the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as an adult and persuaded the Romans to nail him to a cross? Was God's kingdom program finished then? No. It was through the tragedy of the crucifixion of the king that God unveiled and pursued his kingdom purposes. God relentlessly pursues his kingdom purposes in our lives, in the life of the church, and in the world. So sticking with this second point, I want to zero in a little bit on the life of Joseph, this righteous man, this obedient man, who feared much in this time. In verse 13, we see that this angel says to Joseph, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. 
and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This word destroy is kill. It's the same word used to describe what the Jews did to Jesus on the cross. They destroyed him. And in verse 14, what did Joseph do when he heard this? He rose, he took the child and his mother by night, and he departed to Egypt. The angel instructed, and Joseph obeyed perfectly. And no doubt he experienced great fear and urgency to depart, to follow the leading of this angel. And we get a sense of that urgency in that he departed by night, verse 14. By night he departed. He fled at the cover of night, telling us that the threat was real. He felt the urgency. He was no doubt afraid. And what this encounter tells us is that our obedience to God in this present time of waiting, our obedience to God God, does not obligate him to wrap us in bubble wrap. We sometimes think that, do we not? If I obey God, I can expect good, easy things to come my way. We see Joseph obeying God by marrying Mary, wedding her. We see Joseph obeying God by fleeing to Egypt, becoming a fugitive and a refugee all at the same time. And then as we read, we see when he returns to Bethlehem, his, his birthplace, to raise his son in the city of David. He's afraid, and he must flee again to Nazareth. Our obedience to God does not obligate him to cover us in bubble wrap. We can expect genuine emotions of fear and even grief as we walk with God. But we can also expect that each obedient step that we take with God is divinely guided and that God is using in our lives for us to pursue his kingdom purposes, that God is using in our lives to unveil for the benefit of others his kingdom purposes, even if it's uncomfortable even if you're afraid. That's the God we worship. He has stepped into this mess. And one day he will return to this mess and clean it up so that it will be a kingdom of pure peace, pure righteousness, and pure prosperity. But until that day, our focus is on the hope we have in Christ that purifies us So that we can, like Joseph, take those steps in those directions that we don't understand, that we don't really like, but we know God is calling us to. Okay, so let's move to our third prophecy here. It's in verse 23. And here, we're going to see that Jesus is and was despised and rejected by many. Jesus was and is today despised and rejected by many. Verse 23 is a, is a conundrum in the sense that uh, this phrase, and when he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, 
so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is not found anywhere in the Old Testament, this exact phrase, that he would be called a Nazarene. But what Matthew is doing by using the plural prophets there, he's saying that the overall trajectory of the prophets would be that this Messiah, who God is calling, he would be somebody that you wouldn't really be attracted to based on his appearance or based on the family he came from, Joseph and Mary, or where he's from, the town. You see, Nazareth is kind of this backwater, wrong side of the track, small town. And it's a label of scorn in Jesus' day to be from Nazareth. And we see that in John chapter 1, where Philip runs to Nathanael and says, Nathanael, we found the Messiah, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And what does Nathanael say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So right from the start, Jesus, this label that's attached to him is he's a nobody from nowhere. And for a lot of reasons, or excuse me, this is the explanation for a lot of the reasons why people rejected him. He's a Nazarene. He's a Nazarite. He's from a nothing of a town and he's a nobody of a person. And as believers who follow this Jewish peasant from Nazareth, we can expect to take a measure of this scorn and rejection as well. We can expect that as we follow this perceived nobody from nowhere, especially as following him means that our behavior comes across as antiquated or comes across as even hostile to the the good of society's advancement, we can expect a measure of this scorn and rejection as his followers. But that's okay. Because we know where our hope lies. And we know that's not the end of the story. So this last weekend, my cousin uh, got married in, in Austin. It was a great time. One of my favorite things to do at a wedding is to, to dance. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a great dancer, but I don't let that stop me from dancing, okay? So George Strait's playing. I'm out there two-stepping with Nancy. Tom Petty's playing. I'm out there, you know, doing my best moves, whatever those are, without fail, I get a few looks. Do I let those looks stop me from dancing with my bride? Do I let those looks of rejection stop me from enjoying what I'm doing? No, there's nothing better than to dance at a wedding. And in this time, of waiting for our Lord to return. There's nothing better than to keep in step with his leading, to go on dancing with Jesus, if you will, even if you get these looks of scorn, even if that beat that you're dancing to earns the rejection of others. There's no happier place to be than to trust and obey in Jesus. And so this morning, if we were to, To summarize all of this, we've seen that Jesus is the true son. 
It's in him that all these covenant blessings, all these kingdom promises are contained, are housed. And we can expect a measure of them today. Namely, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But we can also expect for their total fulfillment when he returns. We also saw that no matter the obstacles, no matter the grief, no matter the fear, God is going to pursue and unveil his kingdom purposes. Nothing is going to stop him. And that gives us confidence to walk with him, even into those fearful situations, knowing that, yes, this isn't comfortable, but that this is a divinely guided step of obedience that God will bless and use as he pursues and unveils his kingdom purposes. And then finally, Jesus, a nobody from nowhere, we know is everything. And so we stay in step with him, enjoying his leading, knowing that it is leading somewhere beyond what you can imagine. It will, when he returns, it will far exceed our expectations. And so in conclusion, based on all of these, we as God's people, as the body of Christ, let's set our hope in him, upon him. Let's cast all of our cares upon him and just trust him and walk with him, knowing that this hopeful anticipation is concrete. It is real. And so we can be people who are joyful, patiently waiting upon his return. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you through your son, your king and our king, our great deliverer, the one who is advancing his kingdom, the one who is true and faithful. We love him. Grow in us a love for him. Grow in us an understanding of your love for us in him. And may we be people who do display your kingdom. Who do proclaim his name. And who live in this season of hopeful anticipation with our eyes squarely fixed on him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.